am I? Who are you? Just before the service this morning, I went and tried to find somebody who I didn't know, and I was, uh, or at least somebody I don't remember meeting. I, that's more and more common with me. And uh, I was introducing myself to Stella, and almost as quickly as I began to introduce myself to Stella, Kessid came up and thought she would offer an assist in that endeavor. I, th- I think she wanted to make sure I didn't embarrass the church, which I understand. And uh, she said, this is Jonathan, and Jonathan is, well, who are you? She said. And I thought, well, I pointed to my wife, I said, I'm her husband, and I pointed to my daughters, and I'm their dad, and and I kind of went through different fixed points of reference for defining who I am. Right? And that, that's what we do. So who am I? I looked at different things that define who I am, or you looked at different things to define who you are. Identity is a big thing, right? In fact, if you look through Google engrams, you will see that the word identity has exploded in the last hundred years in published material. Before about 1900, people didn't use that word that much at all. Starting around 1900, it just shoots up like this, and especially, especially in the last 40 or 50 years, we use that word identity a lot. In fact, we we, we shape an entire politics around it, don't we? Why is that? Well, if you look to previous centuries, people often, not often, always, treated their identity as something given, something that they were born into and something they were stuck with. I am his son, his grandson. I am her daughter, her granddaughter. I am a Presbyterian or Roman Catholic like generations of people before me. I live in this village like generations of generations of people before me. I am a blacksmith because my dad is a blacksmith. I am a mother because my mother is a mother, and that's just what we do. That's who we are. I am a peasant. I am a slave. I am nobility. All of these things fixed, all of these things given, that is who I am. There's no negotiating here. It just is, right? And what makes the modern era unique is that the combination of technology, particularly transportation and media, together with social movements and worldviews, particularly enlightenment individualism and all of its offshoots, has created a world in which our identities are no longer givens. We can negotiate them. Every authority has been critiqued or come under critique, and therefore that has detached us from all of our givens. Just because that's your job, Dad, doesn't mean it has to be my job. Just because you believe that, Grandpa, doesn't mean I have to believe that. 
just because this is how you've lived, Mom, doesn't mean that's how I have to live. I can decide for myself. Yet, of course, with all of these givens for who I am suddenly up in the air, we find ourselves floating at sea, unmoored, rising or falling with this wave or that in the moment, trying to figure out who we are. And if you grew up in public school like I did, you remember all of those things that we read like Catcher in the Rye and movies we watched like Rebel Without a Cause, all of them doing what? Dealing with this existential angst of, well, who am I? Who, who's to say who I am? That, that is the world we live in still. Which means in the past, or in non-Western cultures today, when mission, missionaries, when Christians would come into a new territory, what they would have to do is battle with these fixed or these given identities. I understand you're a Muslim, and you've been a part of a Muslim family for generations, but Christ comes and calls you to leave that. Uh, I understand you're a brand new believer, and you feel like you're going to bring great shame on your family and on the whole village if you don't marry this girl who your parents have prearranged you to marry even though she's not a Christian, still, Jesus calls you to come. And so, so in other societies, we are going and we are battling against those kind of fixed identities, whereas in our contemporary moment and in Western moments, we're going in and we are responding to fluidity, massive fluidity and instability where people are convinced that their own decisions define who they are. And we find our identity today in one of several places. We find it, I'm a member of this nation. We find it in our sexuality. We find it in our ethnicity. We find it in our jobs, our vocations. And in all of these, the common denominator in all of these actually in this present moment is that in all of them we are looking for our authentic and true selves. So much chaos out there. The waves are so wavy. Where's my true self? I'm going to latch on to this point of reference. I'm going to latch on to that point of reference, so that I know who I am. That's what I need. What's interesting about Christian identity, whether we're speaking into a pre-modern or non-Western context where identities are given, or into a modern and Western context where identities are fluid and unmoored, is that Christianity asks for a radical change in who we are. Now, kids in the room, you may not realize this because you've grown up in a world where Christianity is a given and is all around you. You've been surrounded with But in fact, Christianity asks for a radical change. It asks for us, get this, to be born again. Born again. It asks 
that is to say, for a change so powerful, we can't do it. Only, get this, only God can do it. That's how powerful the change must be in who we are. Islam can't stop it if you're a Muslim. Confucianism can't stop it if you've grown up in that culture. Slavery and aristocracy cannot stop it. No national identity or sexual identity or gender identity or ethnic identity or professional identity can stop it. Because when God comes in acts, well, who can stop God? When he says, you are this now, who will say to him, no, I'm not? He is God. And when he says, this is your authentic self and your true self, we say, okay, that's who I am. Kids, it doesn't matter who your parents are. You can't be born into this. You can only be reborn into this by God and by God's Spirit. This is what Christians call conversion. Yet this brings us to another dilemma. How can we tell who the true Christians are? Am I really a Christian? Have I been born again? Have I experienced this change? The kids in the room will be asking that. Teenagers as well will be asking that question. Am I really a Christian? Uh, anybody visiting this morning may be asking that question, am I really a Christian? Even members of this church will ask that question, am I really a Christian? How can I know? Have I really surrendered everything? Am I following Jesus? Is there a new self or is the old self still in charge? I, I'm not sure. Well, as we've been thinking about in our study of 1 John, John's trying to help a church who had a number of members leave, abandon them, and now they're trying to pick up the pieces. John told them back in chapter 2 that they were never really of us, he said. We, we thought about that. They were, that is to say, never really born again. And in our text today, he's helping them understand how do we know if we've been born again? How can we know who we are? Last week, we walked into the throne room itself and we, we beheld God. God is love, we said, and we thought about what God is love is mean. If you haven't heard that sermon, go back and listen to it because there's no greater meditation than who God is. But as Calvin said, we only know ourselves truly by looking at God and then looking at ourselves. I know who I am relative to Him. So if last week we looked at Him, this week we're stepping out of the throne room now and looking at ourselves again. In relation to all that we just beheld in terms of who he is. Turn to 1 John chapter 5, and I will read the first five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whomever, whoever has been born of him. By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. 
For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you know who you truly are? Answer, look for the evidence. Turn to page 8 in your bulletin. How do you know who you truly are? Look for the evidence. Don't worry about the lines. Turns out those aren't necessary. But that's what we're going to do. We, we, we ask a question, and then we look for evidence. Question one, how do you know you've been born of God? Well, the evidence that you're looking for is that you believe Jesus is the Christ. John is not merely interested in nominal belief, as in, yes, I intellectually affirm that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh, fully God, fully man. Plenty of nominal Christians will believe in that. Rather, he's interested in the kind of belief that combines the mind, the heart, the will. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the Savior and King, has been born of God. He's not talking about a nominal belief. He's talking about an act of belief. I believe that chair will hold my weight. I will prove it by sitting in the chair. I rest in the chair. What's more, someone who believes the Son, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, will follow after him. We'll prove it in so doing. It's a, the title, the Christ, is a title that combines what we think of as religious and political realities. They are all packed together in one in the name of Jesus as the Christ. Christianity doesn't pretend we can separate our politics and our religion quite like that. Jesus came as Savior. Jesus came as King. Someone who has been born of God will say, Jesus is the King who saved me. He governs my life. I follow him. Uh, furthermore, think about how strange it would have been say to say Jesus is the Christ in the ancient Roman world in which John was writing. A, a Jew would say we're still waiting for the Christ. A, a Roman citizen might say Caesar is Lord. But to point to this crucified Jewish man and say, he is the Christ, well, that would have been strange indeed. I think one advantage of living in an increasingly post-Christian instead of a nominally Christian culture is that it's becoming strange again to say Jesus is the Christ, and that's clarifying for everyone. The children and teens in the room, you have grown up in homes, and you've heard some version of the phrase, Jesus is the Christ, all of your life. That doesn't sound weird to you, I'm guessing, but let me assure you, it's weird. It's strange. And if you continue to say Jesus is the Christ in your school or in your college or in your workplace, increasingly people will think you are weird. They will even think you are morally offensive to say Jesus is the Christ. 
And as you grow older and you head off to college or your first job or maybe even while you are still in high school, you're going to ask yourself, do I really believe this stuff? And here's the deal. When you get to that moment, look, look at verse 1 again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you've been born of God, if you've been born again, as verse 1 says, when you get to that moment, do I really believe this stuff? You will not be able to stop. You will not be able to stop believing. You might run away from it, close your eyes and say, oh, I don't believe, but if you have been born again of God, good luck. You're stuck. You're gonna keep believing. That is what we're told. Close your eyes, stop believing, stop believing. You won't be able to if you've been born again of God. And the same is true, of course, of your parents. If, however, you're able to decide, yeah, I, I don't believe all of that stuff. Or if you decide, well, I believe it because it seems a little scary if I don't. I don't really know what's going to happen to me after I die. So yeah, yeah, I'll hold on to it. But I'm not really going to believe believe it. I'm not really going to fall. I'm not really going to invest my life in it. If, if either one of those are you, then be afraid. You have not been born again of God. There were times in my life when I did not want to believe because I wanted the world. You know what was frustrating? I couldn't stop believing. I, I tried, but I couldn't stop believing. It's like Jesus just kept showing up and said, I'm here. What you gonna do? Ugh. Couldn't stop believing that God created me and that He owned my life and that I was created for Him and He was my judge. Couldn't stop believing that I needed a Savior to pay for my sins. Either I would pay for my sins or somebody else would have to come along and pay for my sins because I knew my sins were real. There was no doubt about that. I'm going to pay or substitute's going to pay. What's it going to be? And I knew that anybody who showed up to pay for my sins, defeat those sins, and rise again owned my life. I had no choice but to follow after him. I couldn't stop believing that what the Bible said is true. Everything that it said was true. Because everything, the sin, the guilt, the shame, the good, the bad, the beautiful in the world, all testified to its truth. And its perfect, beautiful cohesion, its consistency in story after story, and even things that look like contradictions at first, as you, as you get to know it better, you're like, ah, oh, this all hangs together amazingly. I'll testify to its truth. So there's Jesus standing in front of me saying, what you going to do? I knew I couldn't stop believing. 
any visitors here this morning, any kids here this morning, do you believe all of those things I just said? That's right at the heart of Christianity. Those are, those are the primary claims that we make. Do you believe those things? If so, please talk to me afterward. If you've been born of God, you cannot stop believing. Meanwhile, John Updike in his novel, The Beauty of the Lilies, describes the opposite. He describes a man losing his faith. At the moment when Mary Pickford fainted, the Reverend Clarence Arthur Wilmot, down in the parsonage of the Fourth Presbyterian Church at the corner of Straight Street and Broadway, felt the last particles of his faith leave him. The sensation was distinct, a visceral surrender, a set of darkening bubbles escaping upward. He stood baffled, looking about the dining room for some exterior sign of the fatal alteration within him. There is no God. With a wink of thought, the universe had been bathed in the pitch-smooth black of utter hopelessness. None of these surfaces at which he looked reflected the sudden, the sudden absence of God from the universe, his legion of angels, his sacrificed son, his ever-watchful and notoriously mysterious providence, his ultimate mercy, the eternal heaven so hard to picture yet for which our hearts so unmistakably yearn, the eternal hell. Perhaps you've known people like this who've said, I, I just can't believe anymore. Or, or maybe even people who said, I want to believe. I'd love to believe. I just can't. Look at verse 1 again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Being born of God is an act of God. Friends, do you see what a gift of grace it is that you believe? You've been born of God. We didn't cause it. Just like we didn't cause our original birth. And if we're truly His, we can't uncause it. Because we're his. Now, tangent, based on other passages of Scripture, that's not to say we don't bear responsibility to preach the gospel so that people might believe and fight to remain being in God by regularly gathering as a church, praying and reading our Bibles. God uses human means for creating faith, for causing us to be born again. If we do not preach the gospel, Romans 10 says, people will not believe. And if we do not persevere to the end, we will not be preserved by God to the end, says Paul. It's sort of like you're at the beach. You want to move a little pool of water as you're playing in the sand to another little hole that you've dung out and so you build a little canal and then the water rushes through the sand from one hole 
to the other whole, where our work of preaching, our work of gathering, our work of submitting ourselves to the Bible is like digging out that little canal. Those are the means that God uses. But of course, God is the one who gives the water. God is the one who has ordained that we dig out those little canals. To switch metaphors, he, he's the one who turns on the light so that we can see. To switch metaphors again, he's the one who causes us to be born again so that we can breathe. If you believe, you look to him as your Savior, yes, but also your Lord, your Christ, your King, whom you follow, so that you know that you are born again. But as I've said throughout the series, John gives us several tests of faith. Here's the second one. How do you know if you love God the Father? Point two. Well, John gives us two pieces of evidence. Evidence A, you love other Christians. Look at the second half of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And then evidence B, you obey his commands. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So love of God shows up, it becomes concrete and clear as we love other Christians and as we obey God's commandments. Neither of these claims should be surprising to you from me at this point. We've heard it several times in this letter. Even last week I said, love shows up in obedience and obedience, I said, is a sign, is a testimony to love. I told you to write it down as a flow chart. Love leads to obedience. Obedience is a sign of love. I've been saying this over and over. Part of you should be saying right now, we've already talked about this. Why are you saying this again? Well, because the Apostle John, Holy Spirit-inspired, wanted to say it again. Apparently, John in the Holy Spirit, thought you guys and I need to hear it again. Something about the last time we heard it and now suggests that we need to hear this again. What in your life suggests that you needed to hear this again? That love leads to obedience and the love of other Christians, which is in turn a, a picture of our love for God. I know I love God. You might think, when we were singing that hymn, tears were rolling down my face. I know I love God. In that Good Friday sermon, as the preacher was talking about the cross, my heart was so moved, and I thought, oh, what a glorious Savior. To which John says, okay, that's fine, but... Are you loving other Christians? Is it showing itself in your life? Are you studying the Bible? Striving to obey His commandments? Because if you're not, I don't care about your tears. I don't care about that sense of, oh, I was so moved. It could be that you're self-deceived. Think yourself, you know yourself, but you don't. In other words, friends, the Bible and its commandments provide the lens by which we know ourselves truly, can see ourselves clearly. Why is that? Well, because the law of God reveals God. And remember what I said about Calvin. I said, Calvin says, it's only as we behold God 
and then behold ourselves that we can know ourselves truly. So what does the law of God do? The law of God reveals God. So that means we can look at the law of God and then we can see ourselves truly, clearly, who we are in the most important place for defining who we are, the throne room of God. Look at my life. I look at the law of God as revealing God and I think, ah, I thought I knew who I was, but maybe I'm not who I thought I was. After all, my guess is most of us spent the majority of this week comparing ourselves to other people for defining who we are. I'm smarter than her. He makes more money than me. I'm not as bad as them. And this is what we do, especially in a culture in which identity has no givens. This is one consequence of our identities becoming unmoored. We're thrown into constant competition and constant recalculations with our compass with which we're, we're trying to compare ourselves. Where am I in this sea? We compare ourselves to other people. Even when Chesed asked me, who are you? I, I quickly looked through human relationships to define myself. I, I was thinking about it afterwards. I wish I'd immediately said, I'm a Christian. I'm a son of the king. I'm a forgiven sinner. That's not what we do. We compare ourselves to other people. And this comparison is the wrong compass, or to switch metaphors again, the wrong lens. It distorts our vision. We can't see clearly with it. It makes us think we're something we're not, whether for better or for worse. The one perfect and reliable lens by which we can see who we truly are is the knowledge of God as revealed in the law and word of God. That is the most permanent and fixed standard. Whether the ways of life are up and down, that is fixed. And I know who I am in comparison to it. It provides the true answer to the question, who am I? Who are you? So friends, just just stop and take a stop of your life for a moment across a range of obediences or disobediences. Are you loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you meditating on him and his word? Or are you forsaking other gods and resting in the Lord of the Sabbath? Are you honoring your parents? Are you lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, lusting, covenanting, thinking of such things? Are you exercising self-control with your eyes and your heart? Are you given to excess in food or alcohol? Fathers, are you exasperating your children? Husbands, are you loving and living with your wives in an understanding way? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Church members, are you showing hospitality to one another? Are you forgiving one another? Are you helping each other to fight sin? Kids, are you honoring your parents? Teenagers, are, are you living in the light with your parents? Or is there kind of a hidden you that your parents don't really know about? Older saints, are you investing in younger saints? I'm giving you a list of laws, aren't I? But it's by such laws that we know who we are. Because such laws reveal God to us. 
in God's perfect righteousness and perfect goodness and perfect love. All the laws summed up in love, says Romans, and God is love, says John. Through such laws, we in fact see the God of love. As non-Christians, this lens should have convicted us and caused us to realize that we deserve nothing but the Lord's punishment and the Lord's wrath. We stand condemned. But when we became Christians, we did this by recognizing, first of all, we haven't kept these laws. But as I said before, one has come to pay the penalty for our transgressions, and he has forgiven us, and now we hold on to him and follow after him. And so increasingly, little by little, the obedience to these laws should characterize our lives as believers. Not only that, we want to. Did you see that little phrase in verse 3? For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. What does that mean? How are His commandments not burdensome? Well, they're not burdensome if they represent what we want. I want to be obedient in those ways. Think of the psalmist who says, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Or Jesus who says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And God's commandments are what we want if we have been born again. The lives of people have been born again, as Luke said when he was calling us to worship, We believe people actually change. We actually begin wanting different things. So friends, if there's some area of your life where you're struggling with sin, where you're struggling to give it up because you still want it, if you're a Christian, I'd encourage you to stop and reflect. Do I really want it? Is there not something better I actually want more? And then lean into that. Lean into that thing that you actually want more. And there you'll find that giving up this sin is not a burden. It's freedom. It's what I want. It's my food to do the will of God. A number of years ago, I was having lunch with a single young man who was a member of my church. Over lunch, he admitted to me that he had sinned with a woman. And it wasn't the first time he had confessed this to me. And I said to him, I'll tell you what, you can stop being a Christian and then just go sin all you want. Just stop being a Christian. And he looked at me like, really? Is that the advice you're going to give me? I said, sure. Listen, if you really want that sin more than you want Jesus, then just stop saying you're with Jesus and go after your sin all you want. Because Christians don't do that. But if you really want Jesus and following after him, you got to stop that. And you want to stop that. So I'm telling you, just stop calling yourself a Christian and pursue your sin. And I think the Holy Spirit of God might have been in him because he said at that moment, I don't want to. I want to follow Jesus. I said, praise God. Thank you for confessing your sin to me. Now let's figure out how you're not going to pursue that anymore. Because being a Christian means being done 
with that sin. Come on, let's go. How do you know who you truly are? Look for evidence. You believe Jesus is the Christ. You love God as shown in loving God's people and obeying His commandments, which you increasingly want to keep. You find them delightful. Finally, question three. How do you know if you love other Christians? Evidence, you love God and obey His commandments. Verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. So it's the same thing we just thought about except the other way around. We know we love God by loving His people. We love His people by loving Him and obeying His commandments. We love God and we love His people by obeying commandments like these. Hebrews 10. Let us not consider how to stir one another up to love and good... Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Galatians 1, or 6, verse 1. Brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of God. Jude 22. And as I'm reading these, friends... This is who we are. This is how you are. This is who we are. This is our life. This is how we live. So listen and, and, and see the people around you. Jude 22 and 23, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, even hating the garment stained by the flesh. 1 Peter 4, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Romans 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. 1 Timothy 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who would have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they would refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. How do you know if you love your fellow Christians? Because you obey commandments like all of these. You love God and you obey commandments like all of those. And friends, in all of this, I hope you see that the relationship between loving God and loving his people are inextricably connected. If you get one thing out of this sermon series from 1 John, I hope it's this. Loving God means loving his people. So when people say, I love Jesus, just not Christians, they're self-deceived. They don't know what they're talking about. You can't love 
one or the other. Why? Because we are God's children. Christian conversion is corporate. We're saved into God, but that we're saved also into God's family. Mom and dad go down to the orphanage. They adopt me. I go home. I walk through the door. I look around. What do I see? Brothers and sisters. That's how adoption works. Christian's conversion signs you up for a family photograph. Which means, friend, if you're trying to live the Christian life and you're trying to do it apart from membership in a local church, you, you, you can't. Christian church membership is how we go about fulfilling all of these commandments. How will you submit to your leaders apart from membership? How will you mourn and rejoice with the body apart from membership? How, how will you bear one another's burdens? How will you practice church discipline? Church membership is the prerequisite, the playing ground, the field on which all of these obediences occur. That's how we do it. And friend, if you're not a member of a church, you don't need to be a member of this church. Find some church where you can learn to obey all that God has commanded you in Christ. Find a church that preaches this book that I've been preaching from this morning, whose leaders lead with integrity, who people's whose people pursue integrity, who, who, who care for one another. A, a, a church that loves God and loves each other and is faithful to his book. That's what you're looking for. For the sake of your soul and your salvation, commit yourself to a local church. And that brings us to a final point, which I've called the verdict. Meaning if you believe Jesus is the Christ and you've begun to love God and everyone born of God and obeyed his commandments, here's the verdict. Point four, verdict, being born of God, you have overcome the world by faith. Verses four and five again. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then verse five basically repeats the point of verse four. Who who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith as given by God's Spirit, creates in us a new identity. And let me add, faith creates an oppositional identity, an identity that is opposed to the world insofar as the world is unbelieving and opposed to God, which is what John is getting at when he says we've overcome the world. As as John Malone prayed, we don't overcome the world with military might. Rather, we overcome the world by believing over and against all the reasons that they would give to us to not believe, over and against all the identities that they would give to us and say, no, this is who you are. Good, bad, this group, that group. Over and against all of that, we say, no, I I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Through our faith and the possession of that faith, we have overcome the world. Verse 5, we believe Jesus is the Son of God in spite of all the reasons that the world gives us not to believe. We have this faith and this identity that stands in contradistinction, stands in opposition to everyone around us insofar as they oppose him. It stands in opposition to the religion of our parents, whether Islam, Buddhism, secular progressivism, or some form of nominal Christianity. 
Our identity stands in opposition to the demands of our nation or our ethnicity or our sexual desires or our career insofar as those things demand allegiance over and against Christ. Our Christian identity stands in opposition to what the Bible calls our flesh, meaning our everyday desires for living how we want to live. For any, everyone who has been born of God, we overcome all of these things. We overcome a whole world, in fact. It's remarkable. Now, you guys may have seen a television show or a movie where, where a secret agent goes into a, a nation and pretends to be a member of that nation. Can, can you think of some show or movie where that's been the case and they kind of they wear the clothes of, of the people and they learn to speak the, the language of that nation without an accent Right, and they get an ordinary, boring job, and they just look like a good citizen of the nation. But you know, because you're you're watching the movie. In fact, you know they go into their rooms and they get out the documents and they take the photos and they sneak into the offices and send the photos overseas. And the whole time, they're a secret nation agent of another nation. Right? You guys, you guys have seen shows like that or or movies like that. Christians, we are like those agents with new and oppositional identities, so hopefully it's not a secret. What makes us foreign agents isn't where we are born. It doesn't matter what school you've gone into or what career you've occupied or who your parents are. These things do not determine your agency as a Christian. Rather, what makes us a foreign agent first is that we've been born of God. Second, what, what does that look like? Well, my beliefs, my loves, my obediences. My sharing of those beliefs and those loves and those obediences with all of you. We have a different ethic. We have a different set of fundamental loyalties as Christians. So who am I? Am I really a Christian? Well, do I, do you, do we spend our whole lives just trying to fit in? Just trying to be like everyone else around us. Is that what you are trying, wanting to do? Or is all the fitting in just a disguise? You can take it or you can leave it. I, yeah, yes, I live in this home. I live in this neighborhood. I drive these cars. I try not to be too weird. Fine, but I can take this stuff or I can leave this stuff because really, I'm doing the work of an agent for another king, for another kingdom. That's who I am. That's my marching orders. And so if I were to come into your life and I were to look at your beliefs, I were to look at your obediences, and I were to look at your loves, and if especially I came into the room when the door was shut or the office when it was shut, when you didn't think anybody else was looking, what would I find there? Would I find you looking through the documents and taking photos for the sake of the king? Or there, in the dark, would I find a series of compromises? I just kind of want to be like the world around me. What am I going to find there? Or would I find loyalty to the king and loyalty to his cause? Let's pray.
Father God, you ask us a series of questions in in this text. Do we believe? Do we love you? Do we love other Christians? Do we obey? We know the answers too often. No, we don't. We pray by your mercy, by your spirit, even today, your spirit would quicken our hearts, that we might believe, that we might love, that we might obey. Help us to love one another, even as Christ has loved us and laid down his life for sinners like us. We pray this in his name. Amen.